You know, I hear that verse Andrew was reading, um, and, and it talks about us being made lower than the angels. It strikes me odd every time I hear that. It sounds like a demotion, actually, to me. Like, like I know we think, oh, wow, we're almost like angels. I think, no, you're lower than the, I'm lower than the angels. There are these heavenly beings, and you're like not there. You're below that. <laughs> I guess they're both true. It's hard to imagine sometimes how difficult it must have been for Jesus to save us. Have you ever thought about that? Can you imagine the, the, the purity of the Son of God, the purity of God in the Son of God descending into this fallen world would be like the king of a country, the most important person of a particular region slogging around in the dump. You know? It was fallen and sinful and gross. And people were, as even, even you think about it, even as, as much as we try to be godly, in God's eyes, apart from Jesus, we barely make a blip on the holiness scale, right? So the whole idea of us, those that are lower than the angels, being crowned with glory, being the recipients of the love of God when we don't deserve it, is, is all very overwhelming and humbling. Some of the things we're looking at today are going to speak to this very issue of um, how far we are from God, how far others are from God, and the, and the relative, maybe marginal differentiation between those who are close to God and those who are far from God in God's eyes in terms of their, in and of themselves, their own holiness, their own religious um, you know, right? It's like from God's perspective, again, apart from Christ, who is the one who washes us clean and able to be in the presence of God, apart from him, <laughs> the differentiation for the person far from God and close to God is, in our eyes, oftentimes overestimated. When we lose sight of that reality, the reality, if I'm being too confusing or obscure here, the, the losing sight of the reality of how much we need Jesus because of the rest of the world looks so bad is dangerous and it threatens the very worship that we offer back to God when we lack that level of humility. Um, if you've been with us um, last couple weeks, we're decided to push our way through two Old Testament books. It used to be one, Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, this morning, we're looking uh, deeper into the first part of that. It used to be one book, and we're in the first five or six chapters of Ezra. Um, <clears throat> the context here is, uh, I have a lot of stuff this morning. That's why I have a table and I'm sitting down here. Um, the context here is, the people of God 
Many of you are aware of the, the fact that they, they were split uh, um, under um, uh, a few generations removed from David, you know, King David. And you got the northern tribe and the southern tribe, and the northern tribe capital was Samaria, and the southern tribe was uh, Jerusalem. And the northern tribe was sacked by the Assyrians, uh, and exiled out never to recover, and the southern kingdom was sacked by the Babylonians, uh, and, then, and, then the, and then the Persians sacked the Babylonians. And so that's where we are now. The Persian king uh, was led by God to allow the people of God that had been exiled by the Babylonians to come back. Persians were a pretty phenomenal Empire. They were very forward-thinking, very progressive. They were developing roads and communication lines, and, and they, they might be some of the very first people to value multiculturalism. They found a diverse society or felt that for diverse, diverse society was a strong society. And they were inclined to uh, allow differences uh, within the different uh, settlements and things. And so they were open to the Jews coming back in. And that's where we are. Uh, they are coming back. Uh, and they're rebuilding again. The people of God are in this perpetual cycle of finding their way back to God and falling away from God. And finding their way back from God and falling away from God. And you and I both know this cycle hasn't changed forever, even in my own life. Right? We're pursuing God. He's, he, you know, we drift away, and then he gets our attention, and we say, God, if you get me out of this, I'll follow you, I'll worship you. And then we do, and then we don't for, you know, and then we're, it is a constant cycle. But rather than be discouraged by that cycle, maybe there's a way to be encouraged by it because it is the nature of the people of God. And there is an ultimate return. There's an ultimate return from exile that's coming, and Jesus is going to lead it back into the ultimate Jerusalem. So it's encouraging to remember that in, you're in the middle of a cycle, or you are returning to God, or you find you found yourself distanced, and, and here you are. And maybe you feel like, ah, he's going to give up on me. I can't go back again. Yes, you can, and you should, because it's really the evidence of the people of God is that they keep returning. The idea has never been uh, that, uh, one of perfection. It has been one of grace and mercy and restoration and forgiveness. And you're in the middle of that. You're in the middle of a much bigger story than just yours, but that bigger story is, it, it, your story reflects that bigger story. Don't be afraid to come back again and again and again. I've told you this story before. We were sitting with some elders in Africa, Adam and I, and they had been reaching out to a certain group of people, and they just kept rejecting them. They wouldn't come. And they were asking us, you know, uh, how, many, how many times should we go back? And Adam said, one more time. Just one more time, and one more time, and one more time, you know? And that's the life of the Christian. That's the life of the Christian in themselves, and it's the life of the Christian in terms of how often we try to reach for those that are far from God. 
again and again and again. Some of you know, you've prayed for years and years and decades and decades before people may have responded in some way to the gospel. We are a people of rebuilding and rebuilding and rebuilding. Here we are in Ezra chapter 3. I'm going to read a few verses here for you. When the seventh, um, this is the first, this is really the first significant action of Ezra. Like, and, and, we, and we get some great wisdom from it. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of uh, Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of this other guy, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it. In accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God, despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar. Well, the, the, the bigger intention here is to build the entire temple. But they don't build the entire temple and then put the altar in place, which is what would normally happen, right? Um, you know, if you're going to build a church, you don't build the altar <laughs> and then build the church around it. But they did. They built the altar first. And we get a great deal of wisdom from that. They are, when they build the altar, essentially restoring the way we connect with God. And if you read in greater depth around that, you'll see that they talk about bringing their tokens of gratefulness, which is their gifts, whether it's financial or animal. It's economic normally in some way, their gifts. They also brought their, their, their talents and their, uh, their aspirations there. They came and, and gave things for the work, but they were all tokens of gratitude. They created the altar and they created the opportunity for the people that hadn't practiced their religion for a few generations to start over with the most basic parts of faith in God. First is gratitude. Don't underestimate the power of your thankfulness to God. Paul certainly does when he tells us to be thankful in all things. There's no shortage of opportunities to be thankful. When I think about the, the song you know, that we just sang about getting, getting to heaven one day and, and being, oh God, my God, how, how wonderful is your name? I, you know what's going to happen. You, you know why you're going to suddenly worship him like he's, you've never worshiped him before, I think, primarily because you're going to go, oh, oh, I didn't see that. I see that you were up to good and only good in all of my life, right? We've talked about this and where we find our joy, right? How can we be thankful in all things? Because we know God is good. Even in our pain and our difficulty, he is up to something phenomenal. We can't see it. So in many cases, we are purely suffering, even if we intellectually like, okay, God, I think I understand that you're up to something good here, but we can't see it and we're burdened and our faith is stretched thin. And then one day we get to be with him face to face and, we, and suddenly it's entirely clear. And it all makes sense and we see once and for all the goodness of God. Well, our gratefulness while we're here is built on that hope. And we put them on that altar. We say, thank you, God. Not just for the blessings of life, for the blessing, but for the blessings of the things that don't seem like blessings to me. 
When Zerubbabel built the altar, he built and put into play some of the most significant things about our connection to God, the first of which is connecting through gratefulness. The second one is the process for covering their sins. They started the sacrificial system up again. They understood, like we were talking about earlier, they understood the impurities of their life. They understood the sinfulness of their life, even though they were the people of God and were living as best they could as the people of God, they still understood the condition of their flesh and the challenges that they faced in their attitudes and the mistakes that they made in their behavior, and they needed a way to confess and be restored and to be cleaned, and they had a system for doing that. We don't rely on that system. We rely on Jesus, but the critical element is the same. They built the altar so that they could express their gratefulness and they could confess their sins and be forgiven. And that is at the core of our worship, their worship and our worship. When we come together, when we gather together, even whether they're in this form or in small group form or, or individually with one another, one-on-one, we should always express our gratitude, confess our sins. They set up the altar in order to restore the way that they connect with God on the, on the most basic level. But then they did other things. They reenacted the feasts, the calendar, the, the, the repetition of events during the year that recalled things that they wanted to remember, and they did those things. That's what we attempt to do with the calendar at Vista. It's why we continue to celebrate Easter and Christmas and uh, other things. We, we understand that the, the rhythm of our weekly worship is supplemented by the rhythm of our year and the big things that we do together with others. And they were building out, essentially, their worship from the, from the altar out, right? Gratefulness and confession and their calendar. They start to build the foundations of the church once they get to the temple, once they get to that point. They're creating, in a sense, a space where they can uh, interact with God. They understood that God inhabited the temple. It was the precursor to Jesus himself, this physical representation, the temple being a representation, this physical space where, the, where, where, the, where God himself dwelled. In advance of Jesus, this was it for them, the presence of God in the temple. So they're, they're building this place where they're going to intersect with God. They implement music. It's probably too loud. Probably not the style that everybody liked. Might have been a little dark for some, right? Music's always been a problem. Trust me, always been a problem. Not everybody likes it. But they didn't, it was, it's good, it's good. We, we sing truth and, and confessions and gratefulness. And then what you might call worship itself. They started saying things like this in Ezra 3.11. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. He is good his love toward Israel endures forever. 
This is a profound statement for them, right? Were they singing this a few years hence? Were they singing this while they were in Babylon? It's a good reason to believe many were. But do you know you're questioning the faith of God when things are that bad, when you've been expelled from your land, the place that is God's, to have been kicked out? And if you understand the deeper spiritual meaning behind it, you understand that God kicked you out, not the Babylon, Babylonians. That God was judging them for their sinfulness. That's pretty crushing. So to remember that the truth that he is good and his love toward Israel endures forever. These lines were written first by probably uh, one of the priests to David, Zadok. And they're recalling the wonderful moments when it was obvious that God's love was good to them, the people that had been exiled and now are back and don't even have a real place to worship yet. They're working on it, but his love endures forever. This is worship. You are good. They sang it. You are good forever and always, which is good to remember right now because you know what's going to happen. It's going to cycle again. But if we can stay there, no matter how life cycles and no matter how our circumstances can turn and twist, when if we worship well, we will be saying, he is good, his love toward Israel endures forever. What's the wisdom in all of this altar and building of worship? It may be no more complicated than this. Spiritual rhythms are a powerful necessity in a believer's life. I think we tend to underestimate the power of routine, and particularly routine with the people of God beside us and before us and behind us and next to us and around us. I don't know if you can pinpoint the most faith building moments of your life. Many of them are in concert with other believers in spaces that hence or prior to had been possibly routine. The disciplines in our own personal life, those routines, we are learning from the Old Testament and throughout scriptures are powerful. They, don't, they, don't only, they, they, they not only remind us of what's important regularly, systematically, they can also inspire and build us. It doesn't take an exciting thing to change you or redirect you. That's what the world wants you to believe. If it doesn't make front page news, it doesn't really count for much. But that's not true. That's not true. Some of those most boring routines can bring about the deepest effect in our life. The practices that we put in place of worship not only remind us and inspire us, but they are a demonstration to others about who we are and what we're up to and why we exist. What we do, what you do. The things that, uh, of your routine that cause you to be unable to be involved in maybe 
other routines or, or the, 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 the tokens of your appreciation, the gifts that you give that, that cause you to be unable to use those resources in other ways communicate something about who you are and who we are and what we value. And the reality of eternity and the purposes for um, dealing with issues of the heart. The things that we do in worship not only are good for us, they demonstrate something to the rest of the world. And, and they might also provide a resistance to the patterns of the world. Right? You, you live, you're going to live in patterns because the world around you is patterned. So if you don't have your own pattern, if we don't have our own pattern, you will fall into the patterns of this world. And more than once throughout Scripture, we are compelled. Paul says, do not conform to the patterns of this world. But we will. I, I, I am, I just, this makes me sick. I hate it. There are things that are much worse than this, I suppose, in the world. But every time a gambling commercial comes on and some popular person is like, yeah, I used to do this. This is great. I just, I, I mother this. Tammy's, Tammy's like, she's like, yeah. You, I say this every time. I go, shame on you. Shame on you. And I name the person on TV. I'm like, shame on you. Shame on you. You are building a pattern. You're up to it right now. You're helping build a pattern that is damaging and hurtful. And you're lying while you do it. You're telling people what's going to happen if they do it, and you're lying. And you and I both know, even though we fight it, the patterns, we live within them. In some cases, we cannot even avoid it. Without strong patterns and rhythms in our, that, that define us, that develop, that, that, are, that, are, that are our worship, if you will, we are tying our own noose and subjecting ourselves to the irresistible, unavoidable patterns of this world. Our patterns have to be stronger than those patterns God wants to do a renewal. He wants to, he wants to perform uh, uh, and bring about a, a renovare in your heart and the heart of the people of the church always. We cannot create that. But we can set the table. And part of setting the table for a renewal of the heart of the individual and of the church is routine and rhythm and spiritual disciplines. What might seem like routine and boring is so only when it's not truly centered on God. Because the reality is God brings the life to the routine. God does not need an exciting routine. He is the excitement. I can't tell you how many times we finish a worship service and we say, man, that came together 
really good. And I'm typically thinking about the programmatic elements. And I remember that had nothing to do with it. They weren't really all that different from last week. God showed up, maybe even just particularly for me. That's what happens. You have told me, you, you, you have told me this. Many of you have walked up to me and said, are you reading my mail? What you said today was exactly what I, well, sometimes wanted to hear, sometimes didn't want to hear. And, and, then, and then there's usually a compliment for me, and I think the compliment is not mine. It's the condition of your heart that allows you to hear from God and to have a powerful moment. I can say the most amazing thing and deliver the most amazing sermon. And if your heart is hard and you're closed, it's going to be a boring sermon. If you ever think the sermons aren't that good, <laughs> you see what I'm saying? You see where I'm headed there? I've actually had people come up to me and say, when you said this, it changed my life. And I know I never said that. I know I never said that. God may have said that. God may have transformed it into that. And what did, what did we do? The same thing we do every week. Pretty much come together, sing songs, read some scripture, teach some stuff. And then God shows up. God shows up in the midst of that what would otherwise just be a boring routine? And this is, what's our routine here? What's our routine at Vista? We have a lot going on, right? You see the calendar, you see the, 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 the reconnect. Then the basic rhythm of Vista is Sunday morning, group life, getting connected and working through real life in a smaller setting. Um, Third Thursday, which is uh, sort of a repackaging of, equ of equipping, but we're doing it on more of a routine where we're inspired by Ezra to say every third Thursday of the month, let's, let's, let's do something for us as a church. Let's worship together. Let's equip ourselves in particular ways. Let's consider and be involved missionally. But so, so really, Sunday group, third Thursday. And then there's certainly personal rhythms for your life, your own personal devotions and, and your own calling, your own missional direction of God into the spheres of your influence. It's really just those four things that we promote. There's others, right? There's other rhythms we have. Uh, we have rhythms of serving, ways to serve. We have rhythms of giving. But in the big picture, those things happen primarily on Sunday. They're just forms of worship, serving and giving, we do Sunday, we do groups, we do equipping now every third Thursday, and then we press upon us to individually uh, have our devotions and consider our missional outreach. And we trust God to breathe into that, to breathe into it. So they did all these things, they put all these things together, and then it all broke down. How is that possible? How is it possible to put the altar in place, to confess, to, to be forgiven, to sing, to worship, to pray, to have a calendar and a rhythm? And how does it break down? I'm going to press 
into a thing here with some level of opinion, just stay with me, I, I think it's related to a particular rhythm that they missed and didn't apply. And in my own life and in the life of the church, I have seen this particular rhythm, when it's missed, suck the life right out of a church to press God to the side. Listen to this. This is Ezra chapter 4. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the families and said, let us help you build. Because I, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Shirhadon, uh, Sarhadon, sorry, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of, uh, Darius, king of Persia. The enemies of Judah and Benjamin asked if they could help build the temple, and they said, no. Which can make sense, which I'll get to, but who were these people? Who were these people? Who were the enemies of Judah and Benjamin? When, when, this, when, Ezra, uh, when Ezra and Nehemiah was written, it was like 200 re years removed from this moment. Looking, they're looking back to history and recording it. That's what the chronicler was doing. 200 years later from this moment, just about the time they were being conquered again <laughs> by Alexander the Great. And of course, 200 years hence, these people that had been rejected in their help and turned against them over 200 years had become certainly legitimate enemies. That enmity had only grown. But who were they? Let me read you some verses from the history books of the Bible, 2 Kings in particular. Remember I told you that the northern tribe... Uh, got conquered by Assyria. Listen to this. Well, more context. So they, they, they kick everybody out, but not everybody, actually. Oftentimes they left kind of poor working class behind so that they could enslave them to do work. But they kick everybody out. And then God continues to intervene in ways that are disruptive to their New empire. <laughs> I love this. The people around them said, oh, this is good. So, so then the king of Assyria gave this order. Have one of the priests you took captive. Samaria was the capital of the northern tribe. From Samaria to go back and live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. Like this, their God, we kicked them out, but their God is still causing problems. So get one of their priests back here, back in here. The people that are still behind and, and whoever else wants to be involved, teach them how to make the God of that land happy. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. 
Now, it was a mess because there were all sorts of different religions and all sorts of different people, and so it got a little bit mixed up, and they had trouble finding their way. But even while these people were worshiping, the chronicler says, the Lord, they were serving other idols, and to this day, their children and their grandchildren continue to do as their ancestors did and do this kind of impure kind of worship. So the chronicler's looking back, it goes back to that day, even though they sent people back in, it just, just got kind of messed up. Okay, advance forward to uh, King, 2 Kings chapter 25. And now we're talking about the southern kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, commander of the imperial guard, goes in, sets fire to the temple, right? Crushes it, the royal palace, all the houses of Jerusalem, everything's burned. Any, any important building was burned. The whole Babylonian army, under the command of the imperial guard, broke down the walls. This is, what, this is what happened, right? This is when the Babylonians, Babylonians took over like 50, 70 years hence of this moment in Ezra. Nebuchadnezzar, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city. So they exiled the people out, along with the rest of the populace that had deserted to the king of the land. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and the fields. In both Assyria, town, in, the, in the capital of Samaria, and uh, in the, down here in the southern part with Jerusalem, after the, both of those exiles, who was left behind were plenty of Jews that couldn't find their way, even when they tried. But they were trying. And they were worshiping this God, among others. They were worshiping the God. The enemies of Judah and Benjamin were their cousins, half-breeds. They were family, people that were actually trying to find their way but couldn't because the culture had overtaken them. Hey, can we help you? We've been worshiping the same God. And they were like, not very well. There's the door. And then what happens? Hatfields and the McCoys. Now they're mad at each other forever and ever. So now when we're writing these book 200 years later and we just say the enemies of Benjamin, they're like, yeah, the enemies of Benjamin and Judah, for sure. If they would think for a minute why they were enemies, they would probably come to the same conclusion I did. This is your fault. <laughs> you were the ones that said no on the grounds that they weren't pure. That's why they refused their help. They weren't pure. They didn't practice pure worship. And they posed a threat to their purity. They posed a threat to dilute their passions, to disrupt their practices, right? We're trying to put in place godly practices, and you have these wacky practices, and if we let too many of you come in here, or any of you, then we won't have the right practices, and God won't love us, and he won't be with us. We've been there this before. We're keeping it pure. Stay out. Then they were probably protecting their children. You can relate to that, can you not? What they misunderstood was the depth of their own unrighteousness. This is what I was referring to earlier, made a little lower than the angels. Jesus comes down and, and, and forgives who? First, who was the biggest problem? The religious elite, the ones that were worshiping perfectly, the ones that kept the law to the letter of the law. 
When we start thinking as a church that those to whom we are reaching, for whom those are, we are reaching, are worse than us, we're in trouble. That they need God more than me. They might need him as much as I used to need him, but not now. <laughs> Wrong. And we forget the means by which the unrighteousness is dealt with. How is the unrighteousness of the people of the Old Testament taken care of? And how is the unrighteousness of the people of the New Testament and of us taken care of? Is it taken care of by our worship, by our temple, by our music? No. The mercy of God then in the form of the sacrifices, now in the form of Jesus. For whom? Everybody. Everybody, every day. They forgot what truly made them godly wasn't the purity of their practice. Why did they say no? They were afraid. They were afraid. What we realize, the wisdom is, our neighbors, however you want to define your neighbor, right? Jesus defined it for us. We'll get to that maybe next week or the week after or never. I don't know. <clears throat> Where uh, spiritual rhythms are a powerful necessity in our life, neighbor relations expose our fears or our faith. The way we treat our neighbors is going to be rooted in fear or in faith. They thought it was their own purity, their own work, their own efforts to draw lines and build boxes that define the saint from the sinner, the godly from the ungodly. They failed to see their own shortcomings and they were afraid to see them. They were afraid to look. And they were afraid that their God wasn't big enough. This has been a pattern and a pathology in the, in the people of God forever and ever. Even in this case, we, 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 we talk about Nehemiah and the building of the wall because he was amazing and he built the wall. And you know what Jesus had said? Don't build a wall, actually. He said, don't build a wall. I will be your wall. Listen to this, Zechariah. Uh, this is one of the priests of, that, of the time. Right there with Ezra and Zerubbabel. So the prophet, speaking for God, says, I looked up and there before him was a man with a measuring line in his hand. He said, I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to go measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and how long it is. Hey, we're rebuilding the temple. We're, rebuilding the temple. we're coming back to Jerusalem. You can see how many people can fit in here. When the angel who was speaking to me was leaving, another angel came to meet him and said, run, tell the young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. The people, God's saying, the people that I want to draw back to you are not going to fit in Jerusalem. 
and I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord. I will be its glory within it. I will protect you. I will be there, and there is no need for the wall. Tear down the wall. Shout and be glad, daughter of Zion, for I am coming. I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. They had this, these words of the prophet with them. Don't build a wall. I'm going to bring many nations together. They were right there. The Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians had helped God bring many, many people close to Jerusalem, close to the temple. And when they said, can we help you? <laughs> they said no. Nobody got this right until Jesus did. Jesus came and, they, and he said, hey, we're going we're gonna to cut through Samaria. And they're like, we can't. Sorry, can't do it. They're half-breeds. Goes way back. Long story, Jesus. <clears throat> we said no to them a long time. They're mad at us. We're mad at them. And they're impure. It's part of the law now. Can't go through. Jesus is like, mm, not my read. Not my read. Not my mission. He just charges right in there. He was available to anybody. And it wasn't just Samaritans that were impure. Sick people were impure, not to be touched, separated, outcast. Where did Jesus go? Right in there. Just touched him, felt him, hugged him. There were no walls for Jesus. And what did Paul say about Jesus as he was build, helping build the church into the Gentile nations? As Paul was taking the cue of Jesus, going, look, it ain't about who they are, where they've been, who they worship. Get out there, get in there. And what did Paul say? Look, everything that divides you needs to go away. Jesus breaks down every wall. We are united as a church now today around Jesus and Jesus alone. Every time the church splits in some form or fashion, whether it's a life group or a denomination, we can't live together. We can't do it. They believe differently. They don't believe the same things. They have a different interpretation. They believe in Gambling. They don't even know how wrong they are. Their language is bad. If we're going to be the people of God, we've got to separate from them. Wrong. A huge opportunity was missed right there. And I argue, again, I said this is my opinion. I argue that it is what brought them down. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day. God is anticipating this moment when it's not going to just be Jews, but all the people. Like, he's been working this whole plan. He's got the most powerful empires and people in the world right in Jerusalem's doorstep. And he's excited. Many nations will be joined. God wants to include everyone and anyone in and near our worship and trust him and trust him to keep everyone close to him, to bring everyone along, to make it all right in the end. He is big enough to work it out. 
Unlikely partnerships are difficult, difficult, hard on us, hard on our kids, but they please God. I got to skip all this. I got some really good stuff here. Maybe the best stuff of the morning I'm skipping. I'm teasing. It's... <clears throat> Let me just try to wrap it up here. Um, the lost opportunity. Here is the ability to advance the mission of God. The Jews and the Samaritans that were astray or, or impure halflings could have been healed it could have been part of reinstituting godly worship that they became enemies. Jesus, as I said, he went to the impure. He went to the tax collector. He went to the sick. He went to the outcast. He went to the Samaritans. It's how we Christians justify bad behavior against the people that we disagree with. We put it on like religious terms. Our separatism. It's justified because we're trying to do right and they're wrong. So we separate. We are called to, we all, we are called to guard our hearts. But there is no reason to guard your heart if no one is there to threaten it. Are you with me? It's almost, to me, it's, it's, it's an invitation to bring your enemies close and then, of course, guard the core of your belief system. Don't separate from them. Then there's, there's no, that's not guarding. That's, that's separation. Guard your heart. That means they're right there. Where was Jesus? If you want to look at Judas's enemy, different ways to look at him. Many believe he was trying to impose the right thing, but nonetheless, he was an enemy. He was not working in the same direction as God, for, Jesus, for sure, as was Peter quite often. And where were they? Right there. We want to always move toward those that are different than us because it's the mission of God. And when you're not up to the mission of God, you end up being far from God your worship ends up becoming rote and meaningless. This is why we have you pray for 10 people that are far from God. It's why we build the partnerships that we do with believers and non-believer organizations. Like It's why we are developing hubs to intersect and be cross-sectioned with people that are different than us. We miss the opportunity as a church to flourish when we separate ourselves from those that are far from God. We can't fully worship God without the effect that someone far from God actually has on us. It keeps us humble. It, it makes us analyze our faith. It's just like when you welcome someone into your home. Think about the condition of your home three hours before the guest shows up. And then what the home is like when they show up. And you go, oh, this is my home. This is how we always live, like this. Same thing with letting people in. We have to clean up 
our act, we look at our worship and we think, this has gone a little south on. This is not, right? When you let people close, it causes us to look at ourselves clearly. It deepens our health. It sharpens our obedience. It demands for us to trust God. Hey, Mike, you know, the one family that's coming, they're in my child, my kid's class, and they don't, I know, I know. And I understand the fear, and I understand the concern. But do you know what almost always happens? That kid is asking questions <laughs> that no one else asks. So let me get this straight. You're saying this guy rose from the dead? What's that about? Are you kidding me? Yes. They ask questions. Oh, my dear wife, she just texted me. It's 11.15, honey. I don't know. You're so right. Thank you, honey. Thank you so much. I'm sorry. God, we need help on so many levels. Uh, help us to love our neighbors well. In Jesus' name, amen.